In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Today's readings really fit with the weather, don't they? Today also my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I know where I might find him, that I might even come to his dwelling. Last week our readings ended with the phrase, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now a week later, we read that after a week of silent mourning with his friends, Job has endured 18 chapters worth of dialogue with his friends about why he is suffering. And for his friends, it all boiled down to one simple fact. You reap what you sow. Job, if you're suffering, it's due to your own actions. You've sinned. There's no other excuse. And as they discuss it, the accusations grow more and more heated as they discuss Job's suffering. The imagined sins get bigger and bigger. And along the way, they mischaracterize God in ways that I know sound and feel familiar. Job, the righteous don't suffer for no cause. Therefore, repent. And here we see Job still sitting on his ash heap, crying out. In his defenses, he has alternated between defending himself and being angry with his friends. And sometimes saying to God, If I've sinned, what have I done to you? You who see everything we do, why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? goes on to accuse God of waiting to find a small sin to judge him greatly on. But at other times, he says things that we still say today, because at times, like Job, we need comfort. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see in my side, and my eyes shall behold him, and not another. Sometimes when we're going through grief or pain or struggles, we lash out at others. Sometimes we lash inward at ourselves. And sometimes we lash out at God, just like Job. And sometimes when we have friends or family going through loss or trauma, we act like Job's friends. I want to paraphrase something I heard another preacher say about Job's friends and ourselves. He said, Sometimes sitting in silence is what we should do. When we hear of a tragedy, our gut reaction is often to reason to ourselves why it won't happen to us or how it could have been avoided. They built their house on a floodplain. He wasn't watching his child closely enough. They live in the wrong neighborhood. You know, nothing good ever happens after midnight. Today, Job feels like God isn't near and that he's not hearing Job. I would lay my case before him. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. But he would give heed to me. The problem is, Job doesn't think God is listening. If I go forward, he's not there. Or backward, I cannot perceive him. On the left, he hides, and I cannot behold him. I turn to the right, but I cannot see him. Now, I'll be honest. There have been days I felt like that in my life, too. God doesn't seem to be listening. I'm not going to ask you all if you felt that way, but I know many of you have. Yes, we and Job know the truth expressed by the psalmist. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. 
you hem me in behind and before you lay your hands upon me. And sometimes we sing words to that effect. St. Patrick's breastplate. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lay down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. But when we're grieving, when circumstances overwhelm us, it can feel like God is distant. And in those moments, it feels like he's not listening. Job's not the only person in the Bible who felt this way. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not answer. By night as well, but I find no rest. This is, said, this is listed as a psalm of David. So David, a man who God says is after his own heart, struggles like Job. Like Job, David knows of God's faithfulness. Our forefathers put their trust in you. They trusted and you delivered them. But then he says, I am a worm, no longer a man. And then lists the troubles he is in and the way he feels about the dangers he faced. He says that the people around him, they say, he trusted in the Lord. Let God deliver him. Let God rescue him if God still delights in him. This psalm is one we often read during Holy Week. Why? I let a Lenten retreat pre-COVID on the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. And one of the things that our Savior says on the cross is to quote this very psalm in Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthane. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We heard the other half of that verse this morning. And are so far from my cry and from the words of my distress. We can explore what some call Christ's cry of desolation more on Good Friday. But it's important to note that there is every indication that he felt alone in that moment. Like Job, like David, like I have felt at times. And I would guess many of you have felt that way as well. Not that God is actually far away, but in those moments he feels like he is. And the fact that he was in every respect tested as we are, yet without sin, is why Jesus is a better high priest. Last week we spoke briefly on how the book of Hebrews starts by discussing how Jesus is better than the angels. The writer of Hebrews in the last few chapters has also contended that Jesus is a better spokesman for God than the prophets ever were. And he was superior to Moses because he took God's people and not just to the promised land, but to a promised land where we can actually experience true rest. And Jesus is better than Aaron and his descendants. Now, next week we'll look at another part of this discussion in more depth. But at the beginning of that discussion, he says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we feel like God is far away, when life is about to overwhelm us, we can still approach God and know that mercy and grace is there in our time of need. And Jesus is better. And the word of God is better because it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul and spirit, joints from marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And this morning we see Jesus dividing a young man's heart when he asks, what do I need to do for eternal life? 
Jesus lists, lists six of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Notice he doesn't mention, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And remember to keep the Sabbath day holy. All of the things Jesus lists are interactions with his fellow man. And then, Jesus looking at him, it says, loved him. And because he loved him, that's when he said, you lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then, come and follow me. This is a shocking call to discipleship. And I think what shocked the disciples so much is because in their culture, they assumed that riches constituted an endorsement by God of the rich person's life. This man's probably gone through his life believing that he's tried to please God, and his riches demonstrate that God is pleased with him. The same way that Job's friends thought that his suffering showed God was angry with him. And when he left, Jesus talked about how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, and that without God's love, without God's help, it's impossible. It's impossible for any of us to get there. And Peter, because of course it's always Peter, looks at Jesus and reminds him they've given up everything to be one of his followers. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one has left house or brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold in this age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and persecution, but in the age to come, eternal life. When we give up our things in following Christ, we gain a family, our fellow brothers and sisters, those that have gone on before, a new father, God, and a home. And as we continue to practice faithfulness during these times of ease, and also during the times of struggle, we come to a deep truth that is healing. Life is hard for those who do wrong and those who do right, but God is everlasting and offers us a relationship that transcends happiness and joy in the moment and transcends our suffering and death. Sometimes we still get stuck in that worldly understanding of things and their importance and our own actions. Faithfulness involves following the rules and doing the right thing. But the reward of faithfulness is not merely happiness. It's not merely riches. It's not merely good fortune. The reward of faithfulness is a deeper relationship with God himself. Let us continue to be faithful and walk deeper into God's love and presence. And remember that Jesus promised in the age to come everlasting life. As it says in Revelations, those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Amen.